This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. I'm in one of those lovely little tree-studded villages that you get in the North Cotswolds where you look at the houses and they're built of that honey-coloured stone and the roofs, you have those stone tiles. It's very distinctive, very, very pretty. This particular settlement is Adelstrop. Adelstrop. That name has a familiar ring because... One afternoon of heat, the express train drew up here unwantedly. It was late June. Now, 100 years ago, in June 1914, on the eve of the First World War, the English poet Edward Thomas found his steam train pulled up here unexpectedly and he just stopped and he listened to the sounds of the summer countryside all around him. And for this week's Open Country... I am going to explore that particular special moment in time and the way that it's resonated ever since. And I'm going to start that in the company of Ian Morton, who's with the Edward Thomas Fellowship, and with Ralph Price, who lives in the village of Adelstrop. And we arranged to meet at the bus stop, which, rather wonderfully, now has the sign from the former railway line that Edward Thomas would have been travelling on. So there we have the wooden bus shelter and Adelstrop. When was this put here, Ralph? That would be following the closure of the station, and that was uh, closed to passenger traffic in 1966. We asked if we could have the station sewing a seat, and the old British Railway said, yes, we could have one. There were two, one on each platform, but they said we could have one. We weren't allowed to fetch it from the station site, which would have been easy. We had to fetch it all the way from Honeybourne in Worcestershire, where they took it to. And it's very special because of the poem Adelstrop. So, Ian, yep. would you read that for us? Okay. We're standing doing this on a quite a cold winter's day, surrounded by birdsong, and the sounds of the landscape as we have it now, tractors, cars going back and forth. Adelstrop. Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name, because one afternoon of heat, the express drew up there, unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed, someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang, closer by, and round him mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. And that he stopped here was pure serendipity, wasn't it? It was. The poem is actually based on three stops. He stopped here in Camden, in a place I think it's called Colwall, and he always carried a notebook and he made notes at the three stations. So that was in uh, June 1914. But he didn't get round to writing the poem until January 1915 when he started writing poetry. And he really pulled the three together. 
and I think he chose Adelstrop because it's such a lovely English name. <laughs> and it fits, doesn't it, in the poem. The other two wouldn't quite work. And he was a nature writer in prose before he did the poetry, so he had a good understanding of the landscape that he would have been travelling through and seeing. That was his strength. He was a nature mm. writer and had written many books and lovely, lovely walking books. And he came to poetry later in life through his friendship through a man called Robert Frost, the famous American poet. We'll find out more about Edward Thomas in just a moment, but... Let's concentrate on Adelstrop. So, Ralph, for you, it's your family been here a long time. Yes, that's right. Well, my grandfather, he worked on what's called the Permanent Way, which is the actual railway line, so he was maintaining all that. And then, uh, as we grew up, my father got a job on uh, Adelstrop Station, so he was the porter at Adelstrop Station. Our growing up time, brother and myself, was... That was our second home, Adelstrop Station, and we literally did everything down there. All gone now. All gone now, I'm afraid. But the line that Edward Thomas was travelling on? Still there. Mm-hmm. Part of the London Paddington to Hereford line still. The trains still run. There's just no station. The station was demolished when passenger traffic was stopped and gradually everything was taken away. The only thing that was left were the platforms... And they probably stayed for about 10 years after the closure date. But then people on the railways noticed that people were being inquisitive and trying to get on there to see where the station was. Because so, of the Adelstrop Because the of poem. the poem. And then they noticed that, and of course they came in and they removed the platforms. And now nothing left at all. So the people who want to come and remember the poem and the inspiration behind it now come to the bus stop. That's Not cool. quite so romantic, but it's important that it's here. That's right, <laughs> that's right. They all come to the to the bus stop and they read the Edward Thomas poem there. And if I'm about on the garden, we, I usually end up talking to people a lot about <laughs> Adelstrop Station. <laughs> <laughs> it's great for people, and then they have that direct connection with it. Because the poem, as I was saying, does have such resonance for people now, 100 years later. So for Edward Thomas, this wasn't his normal stomping ground, was it? No, no, he was on his way to Dimmock to meet his new friend, Robert Frost, and uh, the train did stop here. It probably wasn't an express train, but that, that makes the poem all the more better. Why, <laughs> why has the poem stayed, you know, so popular now? I heard it was like the third most popular poem on Poetry Please, for example. I think, why now? I think, I think it's always been popular. His work has never been out of print. I think it's so understandable... And in a way, it recalls, in a way, in an old England. If, you've ever, if you were a generation that travelled on the old slam door trains or the trains that stopped, modern trains are sort of hermetically sealed. But the old trains, you could hear these noises, you could hear the engine. If it's stuck at a station, you could hear someone cough. Um, probably the nearest thing now is you're stuck on a commuter train outside London Bridge or something. But I think it's so easily accessible. You can understand it, you can form the pictures in your head, and then all of a sudden it just drifts into this lyricism and everybody can understand the bird song. So you can form the pictures in your head very quickly, and I think that's why people love it. It's more, though, isn't it? There's more to the poem than maybe meets the ear when you hear it because of when it was written and when it was published. Yes, uh, it, it was written in, in 15. Edward had decided to join up. He was 38, so he didn't have to join, which is interesting. But it wasn't published until after his death, so he never saw the poem in print. So it was published in 1917? 1917. And he...? He died in April 17, at the opening of the Battle of Arras. He was killed by a, a passing shell. It just didn't damage him, it, but it seems to have sucked all the airs out of his lung. It's quite a common way of death. And a centenary to celebrate. 
centenary to celebrate it and the village wanted to do something to recognise that and with their lovely poem and so Dimmock poets are involved they'll be coming up on June the 24th mm-hmm. they're having a day here well I had big ideas of a steam train but I got in touch with several of the people who operate steam trains but it was not in there they could not afford to do it got talking to First Great Western and we do have a special centenary train that will be pausing in both directions from Oxford to Morton in Marsh, Morton in Marsh to Oxford, and it will pause in the old Adelstrop station site. And someone very special on board that train will read the Edward Thomas poem Adelstrop. I'm going to leave Ian Morton and Ralph Price here chatting, standing underneath the oak tree beside the Adelstrop bus stop. And I'm going to head out across country because it would be lovely to get a bigger picture of what this landscape is like. And I'm going to do that in the company of Janet Deller, who is a walks leader and a voluntary Cotswold warden. That's correct, yes. And this landscape for walking, you know, waymark trails, bridle paths, is is it good? Is it welcoming oh yes it's excellent you have so many trails um we're just walking past the sign that says mcmillan way the mcmillan way passes through here darcy dalton way passes very close by the the next village up which is cornwell which is another very pretty village it goes from the roll right stones passes through cornwell and over to kingham which is close to dalesford mm-hmm. um, so that's very nearby there are lots of very well marked paths all over the cotswolds well we're going to leave adelstrop and I'd like to get towards Dalesford, to the organic farm there, if you could. So we can take a country walk there, if we could. We can indeed. Get off the, the roads here. And for you, Janet, I mean, you're an accountant by profession, so is coming out to do these voluntary walks, is it, is it uh, an important to you to sort of escape from the, the bookishness of accountancy? Oh, very much so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We've just stopped now. You can hear the birds. Mm-hmm. You can hear the water running. That's what it's about, being in the countryside, just enjoying where you are and just being with nature. Dalesford Organic Farm lies just ahead of me. So, Janet, thank you very much for bringing me from Adelstrop to here and a very scenic route cross-country down lanes in the parkland. Thank okay. you very much. That's right, my pleasure. What a lovely walk that was from Adelstrop to the gates of Dalesford Organic Farm. And I've just come here to meet Richard Smith, who's the farm manager, because of the many, many things that happen here, which we'll talk about in a minute, Richard, they make a cheese which they've named Adelstrop. So we've yes, got that lovely correct. connection. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very well identified with the area. But this farm is unique and extensive organic farm. Tell me a little bit about it. This is a very, very diverse property. So we're farming 2,350 acres here. And we farm just about every known sort of animal to British agriculture. So as well as the dairy cows here, which are a British Frisian herd, we're lambing about 1,500 commercial ewes and two flocks of uh, rarer breed sheep. Mm-hmm. We run 5,000 laying hens. Uh, we produce Christmas geese, Christmas turkeys. We have a market garden. Mm-hmm. We have pedigree Angus, pedigree South oh Devon. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and pedigree Gloucesters, which is the rare, a very rare breed of cattle. Um, and it's their milk which we use 
to make the uh, single Gloucester cheese, which is the appellation. Mm-hmm. But Frisian to make the Adelstrop. And we're going to go into the creamery in a moment to find out. And we're going to pop into the creamery yeah. and see that all happening. And all this produce is then um, used within, obviously, the, the farm shop and the cafe and the restaurant here, but also it supplies a very upmarket yes, restaurants very, and yeah, yeah, so it's forth. It's very fair to say that we're supplying to a very high-end mm-hmm. customer. Mm-hmm. We're producing lots of wonderful produce from the farms. Obviously, the Dalesford brand are taking the majority of that and we're supplying our shops in London and our main HQ centre here, um, but we're also supplying into uh, bespoke businesses as well. But as an employer in the area... Fairly significant. Now, considering we were talking about a poem in which it saw about the loss of people from the land. Yes, a a significant employer locally. I mean, we're very, very rural here and we just have uh, very nice Cotswold villages scattered around us. Mm -hmm. And lots of people from those villages now work at Dalesford, um, a considerable amount. Beautiful landscape to walk across and, and to reach here at Dalesford and the lovely undulating countryside and the Vast open fields, neatly clipped hedgerows, very handsome stone-built walls with almost like tile stones rather than big boulders that you might see elsewhere. It's, it's very, very handsome. It is a beautiful part of the countryside, these rolling hills. And, of course, mm. we're in the Cotswolds, the cot being the area, the compound where the sheep was kept and the wold, the rolling hill, so the Cotswolds, because the Cotswolds is a fascinating area. I mean, this was the place to farm back in the days of the empire, and, of course, when wool was worth its weight in gold, this became one of the, the real focal points, central points of, of the British economy and its sheep production. Should we go and find this cheese? Let's go and find some cheese. Well, Richard is still out on the farm, but I've come into one of the big barns which has been converted into a dairy and cheese making. This is where we'll find the adult stock. So we'll go through the biosecurity and into the cheese room. There's this wonderful room with these very handsome cheese presses set out and great barrels. And everybody in here, of course, is as I am, kitted out in whites, keep clean clothes, aren't they? And John Longman, you are the... Cheesemaker. I'm the cheesemaker, yes. And Adelstrop, having come from the village, is the cheese that I want to find out about. Yeah, it was a cheese that was introduced by my predecessor, and they named it Adelstrop. Do you know why so, they went for that? Um, no, they just wanted a local name, and, uh, and as Dalesford is in Adelstrop, it seemed like a good idea. Yes, and it's still in the same um, parish. If you don't live here, it's a difficult name to get your tongue round. <laughs> but uh, I've got used to it now. Is that right? Because I've been talking to people who love the word Adelstrop. Yes, right, yes. <laughs> and the cheese, where is it made and how is it made? We, we, we make the cheese in here, in, in these former Dutch vats. The process goes through, which is in a way similar to cheddar. I mean, it's an English cheese. But then we, we make a difference to it because we rind wash it. And rind washing is where you bathe the cheese in a, a rubbit with a, a culture and a little bit of salt. Over a period of time, you keep the coat slimy and you keep it in a moist, warm environment and it develops a completely different flavour. Mm. And have you any on the go at the moment? We have some in the, in the store, in our stores upstairs, so we can, we can have, have a look at a that. Look. Yes, please. Right. So Such actually, a change in aroma, isn't yes, there? Yes, it is, absolutely. I know I'm getting near the cheese. Yes, <laughs> you'll notice the difference in here. This is quite strong. This is the room here. The strong smell of ammonia. Oh! It's, yes, it does. That's horrible. <laughs> oh, it's like 
bad babies' nappies and all sorts of terrible things. Oh, make yeah, sure I The ammonia is quite strong. <coughs> Even on for a breathing in, and the cheesies are in front of us. Like a large Victoria sponge size, aren't they? Yes, they seem to grow the white mould, which we grow on the, uh, on the soft cheese. So the white mould is like to grow on a brie, because mm. it's sort of wild in here. Mm. That grows on as well, which also adds to the flavour. These ones you see close to that have gone all white and, and knurled, they're quite old. They still have a nice flavour to them, but they're quite old. Oh, it's lovely. Mm. Yeah, a lot of people love it. <laughs> I love it myself. <laughs> it's lovely to, to see how this is made and created. Thank you very much for that, John. What I'm going to do now, though, is I am going to head a few miles south of here, try and find a vantage point somewhere so that I can look down across the landscape that has, for generations, been worked and farmed. So thank you very much, John. Great. This is a wonderful vantage point. So I've come about six miles from Adelstrop and I'm on a high point looking down over the Evenlode Valley and I'm with Dr Kate Tiller, who's a historian, a landscape historian from Oxford University. Now, when we look down across this valley, there would be villages like Shipton under Witchwood, Milton under Witchwood and Witchwood... (laughs) would be Witchwood (laughs) would be the magnificent forest that once spread across this area That's right, we've got a a mixture of two beautiful valleys, the Evenlode and the Windrush and between them this high land that we're standing on here five or six hundred feet up in the Oxfordshire Cotswolds and that uh, upland area was the core of the ancient royal forest of Witchwood and either side of it were these villages like Shipton under Witchwood, Ascot under Witchwood that link very closely in their history and their lives in with the story of the ancient forest. In a way this seems like the archetypical Cotswold countryside landscape but some of the ancient features were in fact swept away in the 1850s and three big things happened. First of all, the railway was put through the Evenlode Valley, the Oxford, Worcester and Wolverhampton Railway. So that's the train on which Edward Thomas would have come and stopped unwontedly at at Adelstrop amidst this very picturesque landscape. But in fact, it was only about 60 years old as a landscape in some ways. The locals, incidentally, call the railway the old, worse and worse because it didn't have a very good reputation for uh, keeping to time. (laughs) Uh, So there was the railway in 1853. Then in 1852-3, at the same time, Shipton and the adjoining area underwent a parliamentary enclosure. So the old, ancient communal strip fields were swept away and the downs up where we're standing now, which had been sheep grazing, they were turned into arable fields. And in the same spirit of progress, in 1857, the forest was disafforested. You use the word disafforestation. But <laughs> why is it not deforestation? The change to Witchwood Forest was done uh, under the terms of an Act of Parliament, and the legal term means that it's not only the physical removal of the uh, the trees and the changing of the landscape, as we, we've seen, uh, but also changing the whole legal status of the area, which had been this special royal jurisdiction. Um, so disafforestation is, is the big legal shift. 
And it's remarkable, within 16 months in 1857-8, almost 2,000 acres of ancient forest. The trees were grubbed up, the land was ploughed by hand, and they got their first crops of seven new enclosed farms, which were where the ancient forest had been, within nine months of that complete closure. And it was written up by some as the epitome of Victorian triumph over nature and the soil and making full use of it. But there was correspondence in the Times about the ghost of Witchwood. People can no longer walk where they wanted, the beauty of the forest destroyed and so on. Between the disafforestation in the late 1850s and the census in 1870, Milton under Witchwood uh, lost 10% of its population and people emigrated... Uh, notably to New Zealand. Some of the wages in this part of Oxfordshire were as low as anywhere in the country for agricultural labourers. So So it wasn't an easy time. Yeah, no work Mm. to keep them here. So they left. A complete transformation of of a landscape to take away Mm. this vast area of woodland. And it's still, I mean, it's beautiful as I look at it. You know, it's it's farmed, there is a beauty to it, Mm. but there's still a sense of that loss of wood isn't there? And, and Nick Mottram is with us, and you're the director, Nick, of the Witchwood Project. That's right, founded in the mid-1990s, picking up on the interest that there is in the local area about the, the history of the landscape and its character. And what we try and do is we try and use that interest and enthusiasm and get people involved in conserving and restoring the landscape that we see today. And creating new woodlands. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But as, as Kate was describing there so well, we're on the downs where they would have grey sheep. And behind us, all around us, all down the other side of this, this vantage point, would have been covered with trees. That's right. Completely open now. Yeah. Unless you get far into the far distance, where there's still quite a big block of woodland of the core remnant of the old Witchwood Forest, which is still left. Um, but the other interesting part is that um, if you look hard within the landscape and you know what you're looking for, where a lot of the woodland was cleared, quite often you find old hedgerows left. And these are hedgerows that were left when the trees were cut back. And if you trace the outline of these hedgerows in landscape, you can quite often trace the, the outline of the old woodlands um, just by the, the hedgerows that are left. Kate Tiller, thank you very much for that picture of the landscape down through the centuries but in a way what we're going to do now is look towards the future because you and I Nick we're going to go down towards Shipton under Witchwood and discover some of the community woods that have been developed over the past years. That's right I think we're going to take a look at Digger's Wood which is a, a woodland created at the to celebrate the millennium. There's still a lot of interest in woodlands and this feeling of, well, the forest has gone, we want to put something back in terms of the woodlands. The grass in the wood here, Nick, is frost-crunchy. Yes. Lovely. Still that last, uh, last little bit of cold air lingering around. And around us we have Digger's Wood, which at just over ten years old, incredible maturity about it already trees everywhere up to about what, 15, 20 feet in height, some of them lovely, even though it's bare a community wood this is so in a way do you think that links with the history of the place because how much the community depended upon which wood the ancient foresters was for the fuel for food, legal or otherwise that people still need forests today, woodland today, in their lives 
Absolutely. There is still a sort of somehow an innate connection inside us to, to woodlands, and they, I think, fill a, a really important part of us. And I think this is one of the reasons why community woodlands, certainly in the Witchwood area, are so popular. We've been involved with uh, 10 community woodlands. Diggers Wood was one of the earliest ones. And for us to come into a woodland, we'll, we'll always have, even in the depths of winter as we are now, the company of bird song in the air. Yeah, just hear them tweeting away. Mm. Wherever you are, whatever time of year. Fantastic. And it just reminds us of the last verse of Adelstrop because he wrote that and for that minute a blackbird sang close by and round him, mistier, further and further all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Doesn't that fit just this very moment? Absolutely. Just as the sun starts to come out, warm everything up. <laughs> 